Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, the latest controversy involving the Orthodox Church is playing out in Yekaterinburg. Police and protesters in Russia's fourth largest city have clashed this week over plans to build a church over a park. So there's certainly some people who are prepared to just kind of stick this out and, and then even seem to be kind of, um, you know, staying the night there. We'll speak with Matthew Luxmore, a Radio Free Europe reporter on the ground, and with Yekaterina Shulman, a political scientist about the larger forces at play. And later, is it a thaw or not? President Putin and U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were playing it hot and cold when they met in Sochi this week. It's always the time for reset, actually, because the relationship between Russia and the United States, with all big differences, is uh, essential for international stability. We'll speak with Fyodor Lukyanov, a Kremlin-focused foreign policy analyst, about whether this visit represents the beginning of a new chapter. And stick around until the end, because we'll be speaking with New Yorker correspondent Joshua Yaffa about his recent profile of Maxim Ospov, a village doctor and writer whose work seems to capture the nuances and peculiarities of life in Russia. First up, thousands of residents of Yekaterinburg, a city of around 1.5 million people, around 2,000 kilometers away from Moscow, have clashed this week with police and supporters of a plan to build an Orthodox church on the site of a public park. On Tuesday, around five people were hospitalized and another 29 arrested at the construction site. Before we speak to Katja Schulman, let's get an update from Matthew Luxmore, a reporter for Radio Free Europe who's there in the city. Matt, thanks for taking the time to speak with us from, from Yekaterinburg. Sure. Can you give us a general idea of what's, what the atmosphere is on the ground there? Um, well, I mean, the protests outside the planned construction site are, I mean, essentially nonstop. I mean, there's, there seems to be always, um, there's always a certain group of people out, outside, you know, it grows to several thousand, it seems, um, you know, after dark, as was evidenced yesterday, um, which was a much larger crowd than the night before. And the night before that, so that was obviously the third night of protests. And tonight is said to be possibly even larger um, than those that have come before. But even during the day, I mean, there were, I'm even reading now on the local site, um, e1.ru, uh, which seems to be, you know, the kind of one-stop portal for news on this, um, that, you know, several people have been detained even today. Um, so, 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 so there's certainly some people who are prepared to, you know, just kind of stick this out and, um, and then and, 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 and even seem to be kind of, um, you know, staying the night there. The, the Moscow Times has reported that according to, to, to some polling, uh, the majority of the majority of uh, respondents who say that they are in favor of the church um, outweighs those against by a margin of between 20 and 40 percent. Is that does that appear to be dampening the spirits at all of the protesters on the ground there? Well, I think a more accurate question is how uh, reliable that poll is. I mean, there's uh, it seems to be a bit more complex than that. I mean, a lot of uh, a certain amount of people, you know, not only the activists I've spoken to, but also people online have actually criticized that poll. Um, there's one Facebook post that I just have on, up on my laptop now. Um, a guy called Vasily Fyodorov, who's a guy from the Ekaterinburg, he's uh, writing on Facebook that um, 
um, one of his friends received a call from Tsiom, which is, uh, you know, the state-backed um, pollster. Um, she was asked three questions. The first was, um, should the church be built in the form in which it's planned, in, you know, the, the, the kind of the way that's been suggested by the, by the project materials? The second question is, should it be built on the place where it's been suggested? Um, and the third is, um, should they should they build the church and afterwards, um, you know, increase and improve the the appearance of the square? So it seems, at least from this post, that people didn't people who were called by the the the, the, pollster, the pollsters didn't really have an opportunity to say no. We're actually against the very idea of having a, a church um, on that territory. Now, this is just one post that I've seen, but I've heard from several activists, you know, just essentially anecdotal evidence that this uh, poll is not reliable. So if anything, I imagine that might be uh, sort of fueling some of the frustration uh, around the protesters. Perhaps. I mean, I guess most people probably aren't particularly surprised by that, but they're probably quite let down by the fact that a lot of media are reporting the story, which, you know, it, you, you can't really you can't really blame media for reporting that because, uh, you know, it is, a, it is a poll by a reputable pollster. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to claim that it's, uh, you know, that it's a rigged poll. Um, but there is some, at least, circumstantial evidence that um, the questions that were asked may not be um, reliable, and may not have been, may not have given people the opportunity to actually voice their, their actual opinion on the project. Is there any sign that political opposition groups are are getting involved or attempting to sort of use use this as an opportunity to to, to gain support, or does this f- more feel like a, a sort of a kind of leaderless, naturally evolving protest? Um, I mean, my sense is the latter. Um, at the same time, I mean, the, the local Navalny headquarters, um, as they do, I think, in most cities, um, have been quite actively covering the protest. Um, when I say in most cities, I mean when protests break out in most cities, they tend to, um, they, 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 I mean, they're, they're, they're usually, I think, involved in, in, in these public initiatives, um, um, you know, involving public anger against municipal projects. Um, and so here in Yekaterinburg, they've also been quite active on Twitter. The activists I spoke to yesterday, they... Um, a number of them told me that they received news relating to the protests and when they'd be happening um, from E1, which is this website that's basically keeping a live feed uh, of information on the protest campaign um, on its site. Um, so I didn't, I didn't hear any mention of Navalny or his supporters. Um, so my sense is this is more of an organic uh, campaign. Obviously, government media, especially local media here, in Yekaterinburg has, has branded the protesters, uh, you know, as, um, you know, paid by, by outside forces, um, which often tends to be the case, I think, in these situations. But um, yeah, my sense is it's more of an organic protest um, where people just bring their friends and people find out about the protests online and where it's going to take place and, and, and what, what time it starts. Based on your conversations with some of the, the demonstrators on the ground, um, what's your sense of their level of determination? Um, pretty high is my sense. I mean, people are pretty, there's, 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 there's real anger, I think, about this, this project. It's not so much that they're building another church. I, I really don't think that that's a big part of people's anger. I mean, you know, there are thousands of churches being, um, you know, so there were 25 churches built over the past year in Moscow alone. But I don't think that that's the kind of source of people's anger. I think people are just very angry that their opinions haven't been consulted. Um, you know, there were there were there were public hearings on this project. I think conducted online, where you could um, you know submit your 
your concerns and your suggestions for two months beginning mid-December. Um, but my, from what I've been reading, um, any complaints about the project or any suggestions that have been moved elsewhere were basically rejected by the planning board. So that, that, I, that doesn't seem to have been kind of an open discussion about the project. And I mean, it's already been approved. Um, so, you know, from an official perspective, there is no discussion left to have. Um, but pe pe people, I mean, the people I spoke to were, were defiant. I mean, some of the shouts that were issued yesterday were, you know, we're, there's going to be more of us tomorrow. Mm. Um, so I think people are, people are definitely... <laughs> People are definitely angry about this, and um, I mean, you know, the the estimate that the RFCRL gave to to two thousand people, I think, was conservative. Just just my sense, but I mean, I haven't looked at the official numbers yet. Um, but there were definitely there were definitely hundreds of people there yesterday. Um, I guess it will just you know we'll have to see what it, what it's like tonight. All right, Matt. Thanks very much for that update. Sure. So now joining us in the line is Yekaterina Shulman, a political analyst uh, based in Moscow. So, Katya, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. First of all, yes, this is about a park, but can you describe some of the larger forces at play here? Is this a protest against sort of the political clout of the Orthodox Church? What's, what's going on here? As usual with every protest episode, there's the general and the specific. If we take the general, it's an extremely typical story. There's hardly a city in Russia. There is no capital of any subject of the Russian Federation where such events have not taken place during the last 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, this is what uh, we call the urban situational protest. It's local, it's concentrated around a specific issue. It's usually some issue of urban life, construction, demolition, uh, creating a park or uh, cutting down a park. It creates a group of people who are against something or for something. And then comes the, again, the extremely typical sequence of events. First, you have to understand that any such episode is an extremely undesirable development for the local authorities. Hmm. So what they usually try to do, there are various steps, like those famous five steps of accustoming yourself to love. First, they try to pretend that nothing is happening. <laughs> to stop the information from coming to the attention of regional authorities if it's municipal and of federal authorities if it's on the regional level. Second, usually uh, such episodes as constructions and demolitions are, of course, in the interest of local economic groups. Oligarchs, minigarchs, minigarchs, people like that. Uh, so they are the interested parties. And the authorities say to them, do you please manage this in some quiet sort of way so we are not entangled in this unpleasant protest activity? So what do the constructors, the developers, the builders do? They try to uh, defeat the protest using their own instruments, which are their security uh, departments, their sporting friends, uh, some half bandits who are connected to them in some way uh, so, as the, so as to make the situation go away. This is second step. It usually makes the situation worse. 
Some of our listeners will notice that there have been, they might uh, uh, sense that there have been a growing number of protests uh, across Russia this year against landfills, waste disposal, uh, against the internet, against a land swap in, in Ingushetia, for example. Do these disparate protests... Against, against restrictions, against restrictions of internet, not against the internet. Yes, quite. Do these, um, do these protests uh, ultimately po- pose any, any threat to the Kremlin, or what would it take for them to pose a threat to the Kremlin? As usual with political science, the answer is yes and no. Uh, No in the sense that it poses no immediate threat to the stability of the regime. People are not going to take over the Kremlin tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Uh, The political system in Russia has, uh, well, certain stability which it can enjoy for quite some time. Uh, And yes, it is dangerous. It's dangerous to every specific mayor and governor because In the eyes of Moscow, the main task of regional authorities is to keep the territory quiet. Mm -hmm. So if we uh, put ourselves in a moment uh, in the shoes of a governor, then we should understand that for him or her, it's really a huge and unpleasant problem. They are trying to deal with it. Uh, They're trying it badly because they are not elected officials. They do not understand what it is to connect with the electorate. They have not been in the situation of competitive politics. So they try to do what they can do. So it's a problem for regional authorities. And generally, yes, it is a problem for the regime because these protests are not just isolated episodes fed by some concurrence of local circumstances. They are the product of the general dissatisfaction that we have seen during, well, every poll that we have taken since, I think, the middle of 2017. Actually, since the onset of economic depression, since uh, 2014, every expert who is worth listening to said that there will be consequences in the form of changing public opinion, only they will not come too soon. Uh, Usually, uh, political science says that there's a nine-month to to a year gap between the worsening of economic conditions and the uh, sociologically perceivable consequences. But this is for democracies. In autocracies, it happens way, way slower. But still, it happens. What is your sense of how this is going to play out? What do you think uh, we can expect to happen in Yekaterinburg? Ah, Yekaterinburg looks like the worst of the worst of the, of the bad scenarios. Uh, every mistake that could have been made has been made uh, on the part of the authorities and on the part of the protesters. I don't see what I would very much like to see uh, organization. There are no public bodies. There are no political parties involved. Uh, no legis- legislators. Uh, no mediating of, of any sort. Uh, I don't even see any NGOs. Uh, it's just uh, this atomized, but mass protest, which can turn violent, but which can hardly turn uh, effective. We now see that the issue is not, for, for the organizers, the issue is not just about the church, uh, it's a whole complex which is planned to be built there. And the interested party is the copper uh, factory, one of the bigger oligarchs of the region, who owns, uh, well, m- much of 
Свердловская область, and of Екатеринбург City, and of the authorities and media are there. Uh, it's evident that uh, the local authorities have decided to go the violent way, so we see mass detentions, and after that we see administrative arrests, not even fines. Fines uh, are generally the most popular means now of punishing uh, the protesters. But here we see administrative arrests, 21 cases, this is a lot. It would have been a lot for Moscow, but for a smaller city like Yekaterinburg, it's, it's an extremely high number. Now much depends on how many people will come there next day uh, and whether they will come at all. Uh, if the issue will grow big enough for the federal authorities to interfere, so far they try to stay away from this. It's, it's their usual tactic to try and stay away from this. But if it gets too big and ugly, then uh, the uh, presidential administration will have to step in. Uh, police is all very well, but if the problem doesn't go away in this, using this method, then they'll have to come up with something else. Katya, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Russia this week for direct talks with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and President Putin. We seek a better relationship with Russia and we urge that it work alongside us to change the trajectory of the relationship, which will benefit each of our peoples. During the talks, Mr. Pompeo said that U.S. President Donald Trump was committed to repairing ties with Russia. Mr. Lavrov seemed to reciprocate, saying that it was time for the countries to set aside their differences. But when it came down to the actual issues, they could only agree to disagree. Joining us on the line is Fyodor Lukyanov, a Kremlin-focused foreign policy a Kremlin-focused foreign policy analyst and the editor of the Russia in Global Affairs Journal. Fyodor, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. When Mr. Putin and Mr. Pompeo sat down on Tuesday evening, the first issue that the Russian president raised was the how well, how the Mueller report didn't find evidence of collusion. Mr. Putin seems eager for a reset. Is now the time? It's always the time for reset, actually, because relationship be- between Russia and the United States, with all big differences, uh, is uh, so much essential for international stability that, of course, any responsible leader should be ready for uh, discussing uh, reset uh, any time. As for the statement you mentioned, uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, I'm not sure whether Mr. Putin was uh, very much serious when he mentioned Mueller report, or it was sort of irony, because uh, the whole investigation provoked a lot of different feelings in, 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 in Moscow, including the feeling that it was a big farce. So right, wrongly, but this is perceived here as uh, something which has absolutely nothing to do with reality, but uh, is entertained by uh, U.S. politicians uh, due to their internal infightings and uh, internal uh, motives. Anyway, uh, the very fact that Putin was uh, very much constructive vis-a-vis Pompeo uh, was uh, just uh, another sign that Moscow is not very much satisfied with the level of relationship and this confrontation, which is uh, sometimes a little bit uh, absurd and farcical, uh, should be overcome. At the same time, was it uh, a wise way to launch this kind of reset invitation 
by mentioning Miller report, that that remains a question <laughs> to me. But anyway, when it comes to actual compromises, it seems like the United States might be more likely to give concessions than we've seen Donald Trump repeatedly defend Russia, particularly on the issue of elections meddling. But we haven't seen Mr. Putin indicate, for instance, that Russia might hand back Crimea to Ukraine. Is this ultimately a win-win for Putin? Uh, You know, I humbly disagree with you uh, because, uh, frankly, I don't think any uh, signs of uh, goodwill on on the American side. In fact, Trump is not defending Russia. Trump is defending himself Mm. because he understands very well that all attacks connected to Russian meddling, real or uh, unreal, but this is uh, a way to undermine his positions. And uh, he uh, is trying to counter those uh, accusations uh, against him, not against Putin. So he doesn't care so much about Putin, unlike what uh, uh, American commentators used to believe. If we look at the real policy during the Trump administration, there is much worse than uh, absence of compromise. This is a constant deterioration of relationship. Sanctions almost each week, sanctions imposed by different bodies. Uh, It seems uh, from time to time that uh, U.S. Congress and U.S. administration are, so to say, competing. Who is able to introduce uh, uh, more uh, harsher sanctions against Russia? Uh, And if we disregard some of uh, extravagant rhetoric by Trump, which again has very little to do with with real Russia. It it has to do with the whole situation in the United States. I think that so-called positive phases, like now when Pompeo came, this is the phase when when, uh, uh, both sides try to address uh, each other in a polite way and to elaborate an hypothetical agenda. And the negative, uh, negative phase, negative stage, which inevitably comes after the positive one, is normally a real, very severe sanctions and pressure on Russia from the American side. So at the end of the day, the whole state of relationship is going down very, very um, rapidly. So I don't see um, any kind of uh, spirit of uh, possible compromises uh, uh, demonstrated on the American side. As for the Russian side, you mentioned Crimea. Of course, Crimea is uh, out of discussion. That, for many reasons, it's not anything which anybody can expect from Russia. I think that there might be some um, uh, negotiations and even uh, conclusions on the Middle East or North Korea or uh, even Venezuela to a certain extent. But again, I don't see a real ground for um, for serious talk, serious bargaining. So far, what we see is just uh, rhetoric. It seems like reading between the lines from the, from the discussions on Tuesday that one area where the two sides might be able to come to some sort of agreement is arms control. What's your take on this? Arms control is about to disappear from the agenda, unfortunately. The INF treaty has already gone. As for START, which was discussed uh, apparently between uh, Pompeo and uh, uh, Putin and Lavrov, uh, it is possible that sides uh, agree to extend this treaty for one single reason, to do it. Uh, in order to do it, they don't need to do anything, just to say, 
But even this uh, is not uh, very likely from my point of view, because the basic assumption, which has been manifested by, for example, John Bolton many times, is that the whole system of arms control, as designed in the uh, 1960s, and then developed and built, built up uh, during uh, centuries, the whole model has been exhausted and is outdated. Okay, so what I hear from Western observers is that the only possible way to reset relations with the United States will be after Mr. Putin has left office. Is that your analysis too? Is that your sense of the dynamics? It's quite clear that Putin uh, is the person who is perceived uh, in the West as a very much uh, uh, toxic and uh, uh, and uh, uh, subject or matter for al- allergy for uh, many Western uh, Western leaders. So in this regard, yes, uh, Putin has his reputation and his image, uh, which uh, from my point of view is uh, to a large extent wrong, but it, it does exist already. So it's almost impossible to change. And uh, with him, uh, any uh, different uh, models and uh, ways of relationship are uh, quite uh, unlikely. Uh, what I doubt is that uh, after Putin, it will not be a completely new opening because many problems between Russia and the United States, between Russia and the West, inside the West, between the West and China, inside the framework of strategic stability and arms control, all of them are not because of Putin or Trump. They are objective uh, uh, transformations of the whole international environment. And to address it, politicians, experts, need very new way to approach them, which we don't see yet. Maybe it will come because uh, it's uh, growing confusion and growing realization that uh, uh, previous models uh, are not applicable anymore. But uh, it's not there yet. And uh, I doubt that uh, any Russian leader after Putin will change course so much that the United States will find it easy to, um, to work with him. Fyodor, thanks very much for uh, giving us your views from, uh, from Moscow today. Thank you. Bye-bye. And to finish off, Joshua Yaffa is the New Yorker's correspondent here in Russia. He recently published a profile of Maxim Osipov, a village doctor and writer who is often, and against his will, compared to the Russian writer Anton Chekhov. Josh, thanks very much for taking the time to be in the studio with us today. Thank you for having me. This piece is ostensibly a profile of a writer and trained doctor. For listeners who haven't read your piece yet, can you introduce him to us? Sure. The person I write about in this latest piece for The New Yorker is named Maxim Osipov. Uh, it was an interesting piece to write because Maxim is as much a friend and neighbor as a journalistic uh, subject. I've gotten to know him over the past uh, few years as I've uh, spent more and more of my time uh, in Tarusa, the town that I also write about, uh, which is about 120, 130 kilometers um, from Moscow. Moscow. And uh, Maxim is a cardiologist uh, trained in Moscow, educated um, uh, as well in the United States, where he did um, uh, a brief uh, a brief internship at a hospital in, in Northern California, and uh, has been working at the Tarusa Hospital uh, for the past uh, ten or, uh, or more years, almost uh, fifteen years. Um, and at the same time. He's also uh, author of uh, short fiction, a number of acclaimed uh, short stories that have won uh, various literary prizes uh, in Russia, uh, for which he's developed a sizable 
uh, following, and he just published uh, his first collection of translated stories uh, in English uh, in America. So it's this combination of, of practicing doctor and practicing writer uh, that has given him a, a, a sort of a mystique added to his uh, legend, his following. Uh, he's often compared uh, to Chekhov, the kind of er uh, doctor writer of the Russian provinces, a comparison uh, that drives him uh, a bit crazy, uh, <laughs> that he finds um, uh, both somehow kind of unbecoming uh, and, um, and a bit of a, a cliché but uh, nonetheless uh, probably uh, unavoidable. Um, and uh, as I said, he's, uh, I've really gotten to know him as someone I sit and drink tea with, go to the swimming pool with, play billiards with, drink wine with. Uh, so reporting on him was, was a bit awkward, but also quite fun and getting to go over to the house uh, where I'd been many times to talk to a person I've talked to many times, but this time with more sort of pointed uh, questions with the tape recorder on. And, and I, I learned lots that I hadn't learned over the course of uh, the two years that I had just spent with him socially uh, as a friend, of course. I don't, you know, while, while I'm curious by nature, I, I don't, at least I hope not, uh, I don't pep- pepper my friends with the sort of relentless interrogatory questions that I might when, when uh, on the job, um, so to speak. So it was a, it was a pleasure for me, I, I hope for him, uh, to get to spend some time together in that um, new capacity as well set the scene here, or at least talk about the stage of this story. And from the way you describe this village of Tarusa in the piece, it's clear that it has a, a sort of a significance for for you personally. Can you tell us a little bit about the place more sort of more generally and about, I suppose, your, your sort of personal relationship with, with the village and why it matters as a, as a scene for the story? Sure. Uh, I first went to Tarusa, as I describe in the piece, in the summer of 2016. Uh, my girlfriend, Yulia, suggested we uh, get out of town, um, uh, get some fresh air, escape the sort of hot uh, and, uh, you know, unpleasant um, uh, center of uh, Moscow. Um, and uh, she knew about Tarusa, uh, and uh, I happily uh, went along for the drive. Um, and we spent a really lovely uh, couple days there. We, we strolled the embankment of the Akka River. We went to this uh, local cafe, the Chiburyechna, and sat outside. Uh, we went to the Marina Tsvetaeva Museum in Tarusa, Marina Tsvetaeva, the beloved and, and quite tragic um, Russian uh, poet of the 20th century, spent her early uh, childhood years uh, in Tarusa. And we can talk a bit more about Tsvetaeva and what she means um, for the town uh, just really around the corner from the Tsvetaeva uh, house and museum is the House Museum uh, of Konstantin Postovsky, a sort of naturalistic, uh, thorough-esque writer of the Soviet uh, mid-century uh, who, who lived in Tarusa and whose house functioned as a kind of open uh, salon uh, for all manner of literary and artistic figures, many of whom ended up in Tarusa and environs because they were in one way or another, on the outs um, with the Soviet uh, regime. Uh, and so I could immediately feel this rich and, and quite concentrated sense of history uh, and culture in Tarusa, and I was also taken just by its natural charm uh, and, and beauty. It's set on a curve in the Akka River. Uh, there are wonderful old uh, wooden homes. Um, the, the town is a bit um, hilly uh, with a kind of rolling uh, landscape, and it just had this remarkable and, and, and quite lovely small town uh, charm. And there seemed to be a, a kind of cheerful 
uh, energy uh, to the place, which you don't always get when you end up in a in a uh, Russian small town in the in the provinces. Um, and it still has uh, this kind of core uh, of of people who either have a sort of direct relationship um, to the kinds of people who say gathered at Paustovsky's uh, house in the in the sixties, or in some sort of metaphorical, spiritual way or, or, or of that ilk or, 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 or uh, on that same um, wavelength. Maxim certainly uh, is one of them. And, and so I very quickly became attached to Tarusa's parallel social world, uh, as it were, um, uh, and, and really became fond of uh, you know, popping from one house to the other to sit on the tea, sit on the veranda having tea, or mm. or, or you know have grill shashlik uh, in the yard and have wonderful uh, long conversations and, and and meet the kind of people who I don't necessarily encounter in my Moscow life, right? Which is just a, a big city life where you're not necessarily lazily you know spending hours uh, uh, having the kinds of conversations one imagines right. you know from from uh, Chekhov, but but uh, Tarusa the the pace of life and just the organization of life allows for that. So uh, when Yuli and I rented a dacha of our own uh, in Tarusa, we we very enthusiastically fell into that sort of uh, rhythm and just fell into that uh, sort of uh, lifestyle with, with Maxime, one of the uh, several people we grew uh, fond of and, 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 and close to and, and developed, as I said, this whole sort of parallel life and, 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 and parallel social world, you know, a hundred plus kilometers from Moscow. I want to quote a, a quote, a, quote a passage of a piece for listeners as, as a way of sort of placing Maxim's writing within within its sort of literary context. You say, in the past two decades, Russian literature has been dominated by surreal dystopian tales, an appropriate genre perhaps to describe the convulsions that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Maxim's stories, by contrast, are quiet, almost documentary. What is it about the man himself that you feel has uh, made it possible for him to have another view uh, of life, disparate, disparate from other works of literature that, that, that we've seen here. Well, first, I think I want to go back and just expand a little bit on that point that you that you quoted. I didn't get a chance to sort of do that in full uh, in the piece, but maybe for the listeners of your podcast who have uh, a, a Russia interest or, or a Russia familiarity, it might be useful, interesting to to expand on that. And that is to you know highlight the kind of key or sort of signal authors um, of the past decade or more the 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 past or current generation um in in russian literature and and which initially uh was dominated by people like victor Pelevin uh and vladimir uh sorokin who wrote these the, the kinds of works that i was alluding to in that in right. that passage these um uh surreal dystopian uh fables that as many russians explained to me as i uh for this piece and and just outside of it before for my own curiosity would ask why were those sorts of authors the ones who seemed to speak most immediately or urgently to the to the times and and why did their work sort of rise to the surface and seem to meet russians own kind of expectations or or understandings of of um of the era and that was because the tumult chaos changes especially of the 90s, but really continuing through to the early 2000s, uh, were so uh, difficult uh, to imagine uh, and so impossible to wrap your mind around that the most uh, phantasmagoric, conspirological, surreal explanations for life actually seemed the most plausible. And and so uh, there was something almost explanatory about the uh, over-the-top wow. fables of someone like uh, Pelievin or these, these sort of dystopian parallel realities of Sorokin that, that somehow seemed 
the realest explanation of events that one could one could think of in some ways far more real than the actual uh, ex- explanations, which are even more difficult uh, to wrap one's mind around and, and maybe even more scary uh, to contemplate than these somewhat cartoonish, surreal, cinem- uh, cinematic ones. And after that, I mean, I'm, I'm no great scholar of contemporary Russian literature, so I could definitely uh, mess up my uh, analysis here, and I would welcome being, being um, corrected. But as I understand it, Coming out of that school, you then had authors who returned uh, to the past, uh, people like Ludmila uh, Ulitskaya, or more recently, uh, Gazel Yachana, uh, who wrote a very acclaimed uh, book, maybe the most uh, acclaimed uh, book of, of recent years um, in Russia about um, the way the uh, Stalin uh, repressions uh, affected um, the Tatar community or one, one Tatar young woman in, in particular. And uh, Ulitska, an author I admire greatly, really minds the late Soviet um, experience to come up with very modern allegories. I think that there's she, she's sees herself as writing about the present, but finds uh, it most useful to do so in the context um, of the past. And I think maybe the same thing could be true for an author like Yachina. So that's my long preamble to say that Maxim is doing something uh, very different, uh, as I say uh, in the piece. He's writing quiet, almost documentary, as I write, tales of contemporary life from the Russian provinces. There's, there is a surreal element to them, but that's only because life in the Russian provinces can at times seem uh, a bit surreal. But really, they're very kind of picayune, observational pieces about um, contemporary life in the provinces with recognizable characters who aren't extreme they're they're not vampires uh right they're they're not time travelers they're uh characters who i quite delightfully began to recognize in tarusa maxim very much uh is is in the most immediate way inspired by his life in tarusa his work at the tarusa hospital so when you begin to spend some time in tarusa and you simultaneously read maxim's stories as as i did you you kind of walk around town recognizing um, this or that uh character or this or that um setting so there is something immediately documentary about his work. And in my admittedly shallow, not entirely or far from uh, exhaustive reading of contemporary Russian literature, that does seem to be uh, unique. And there is something kind of throwback about that approach. And, and, you know, dare I say Chekhovian, even though he would would protest um, at the comparison. But there aren't a lot of contemporary Russian writers writing in this kind of uh, 19th century style. And as I, I, I quote, one of the, the best uh, and certainly one of the, the literary critics I most admire in, in, in Russia today, Anna Narinska, who, who says that there is something of the 19th century uh, about uh, uh, Maxim. And she cites his willingness uh, or even kind of compulsion to have a sort of moral position uh, in, in both uh, his life uh, and certainly uh, in his stories. And that also, I think, harkens back to the tradition uh, of Russian literature um, from uh, the 19th century with writers who were both observing and describing in a quasi-documentary fashion life around them, but also imparting uh, a real moral vision uh, to their readers about how they think that life should be structured and, and organized. Throughout your piece, we're, we're led to infer that Maxim is, especially in his role as a doctor, describing not just the Russians around him, but all Russians. And I'm kind of wondering what your sense of that is and kind of what he's saying about Russia more broadly. That's a difficult question. Um, 
because I'm not I'm not sure that he necessarily would would uh, take such a kind of great or sweeping mantle uh, for himself, and I don't necessarily know if I want to ascribe it to him. Maybe I'm so under the sway of seeing these stories as these kind of Tarusa fables, as I as I say that um, you know it's 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 uh, I, I hesitate to make them sort of grand sweeping allegories for Russia as a whole, though of course. As Maxim would admit, as I certainly have come to see, Tarusa is a kind of stand-in uh, for Russia. But just like the way you know, any small town contains um, the multitude of, of characters and um, and experiences that that represent, you know, if not the entirety, at least a pretty telling swath of Russian life. But you know, you're right that Maxim's stories do capture this. Um, interesting and I think revealing cross-section of Russian life. He, he writes a lot about what in Russian we would call intelligently, uh, 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 a term I struggled a bit to explain um, in the piece uh, what an intelligent is uh, to an American audience. It's not someone who's just intelligent in the um, English sense of the word, right? But someone with a particular um, cultural and moral uh, code, a kind of worldview and, and um, code of behaviors that are immediately recognizable to other uh, intelligently. Um, and, and Maxim himself is certainly of that uh, social uh, category and, and, and class. But he also uh, is ready to levy a just degree of criticism at that class, or at least call out uh, the um, uh, intelligenti for their kind of shifting uh, you know, s- sympathies, their sometimes misguided certainty about how um, the way the world works a a a, a kind of you know episodic um, sense of condescension or or, or um, trap of being somewhat patronizing to the uh, sort of unwashed masses, but also with a deep kind of you know nobility of of, of purpose. So all all of those contradictions I think exist um, in in real life uh, and, and certainly exist in Maxime's uh, prose and his description of the kind of uh, intelligent uh, intelligently uh, sort of characters who, who populate them. Um, and I think he also has a very uh, bracing and clear-eyed, unsentimental view of the sort of Russian narod, the people. Mm. Um, and I, at times, find that view, uh, it, it takes me aback, and it's sort of, uh, it can be uh, unsparing to the point of almost cruelty, yet there's something ennobling in the end, I think, about that view, because it's not sentimental, it's not patronizing, it's not protective uh, of those characters. And I think many writers who come from the world of the uh, intelligently, uh, this intelligently class, would, would find it hard to be so unsparing uh, of, of right. the characters, uh, right, who, who aren't uh, from, from that world. But there's something, Maxime, I think, gives them a kind of dignity by treating them with the same lens that he uh, treats the, um, you know, intelligently characters uh, in his works. And I think that that worldview in large measure comes from his unique position at the hospital, which gives him this sort of insider-outsider uh, access uh, and, and sort of observational platform uh, from which to to both be of this sort of educated, urbane, intelligently class, but with this very real day in and day out tactile interaction with with all manner of people mm. who come uh, through the hospital. I mean, the hospital, the Tarusa hospital, is a really unique place. I mean, not unique in every maybe town in, in Russia has a hospital like this, although 
not a hospital that's been, you know, renovated uh, thanks to millions of uh, dollars in donations that Maxime has helped assemble and channel toward uh, advanced, you know, diagnostic uh, equipment and, and supplies. So in that sense, I go back to my uh, earlier statement that the, the, the Tarusa Hospital is unique, uh, but it's not unique in the sense that all of the town's, you know, dramatic uh, persona uh, pass through and, and, and Maxime has this perch from which to uh, observe them and participate uh, in their lives. Lives, not at a remove, uh, but in the most uh, direct way. And I think that that, that sort of fuels uh, his very doctorly approach uh, to his prose, which is, in a way, the kind of best best side manner you could hope for from, from a doctor, someone mm-hmm. who, who plays it straight without undue uh, sentimentality, who gives you the facts and is uh, competent and professional in delivering uh, his or her diagnoses without sort of overly, uh, without treating you um, overly patronizingly or, 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 or like a child, right? Giving you, giving you the bad news, uh, if that's what it is, most directly, but doing so um, competently and, and professionally. That's, that's a, I'm, I'm sure, a muddled and imperfect uh, metaphor, but, but I do think there's, there's something of the, the doctor in, in Maxime as a writer. Joshua, thanks very much for taking the time to join us in the studio today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on Mike Pompeo's visit and the protests in Yekaterinburg. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News.